Well, friends, I want to invite you this morning to turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. And if you need a copy of the Bible, look right in front of you on the back of the pew or the chair. You should see one. Uh, The psalm that we're going to look at this morning is on page 454 of those little Bibles in front of you. Uh, One of our favorite children's books in our home by one of our favorite children's authors is actually a book set at Christmas time called Stick Man by Julia Donaldson. Anybody got that one? Stick Man by Julia Donaldson? Wow. Okay, guys, I think Amazon can get you this book before Christmas if you order this afternoon. I'll see if I can't convince you to do it. Uh, this is one of these books that, I, mean, it's, it's, I think it's just profound, subtle, but profound. It starts happy and gets subtly dark really quick and spoiler alert ends happy again so don't worry about it but bear with me book opens with a uh with with stick man he's our main character he's happily living in the family tree with his stick lady love and their stick children three all is well at least at first until one day stick man goes out for a jog and sadly he fails to look out for a dog and the dog doesn't see stick man The dog sees a stick for his favorite game. I'll drop it and fetch it and drop it again, then I'll drop it and fetch it and drop it again. That's all he sees, a fetch toy. And once the dog has had his fun with Stick Man, next it's a a swan who sees not Stick Man, but a twig for a nest. Followed by a dad who sees not Stick Man, but a mast for a flag on a sandcastle. Stickman is a bow, or, or, uh, is, is a bow for an arrow. He's an arm for a snowman. Eventually, when he's too tired to even notice or complain, he's picked up as a stick for a fire. And with every step and every misuse, he gets further and further from the family tree. At every step, he's calling out in protest. I'm not a mask for a silly old flag or a sword for a knight or a hook for a bag. I'm not a pin, I'm not a bow, I'm not a bat or a boomerang, no. I'm not an arm, can nobody see? I'm stick man, I'm stick man, I'm stick man, that's me. And I long to get back to the family tree. But nobody hears him, nobody sees. Or rather, all they see is what they want to see. All they see is what they want to use. Because in their eyes, he's not a man with a home or a family. He's just a stick. Now, I promise you, it ends happy. But along the way, it is a subtle, and I I think just a really powerful example of what injustice feels like on the inside, of what it is to be objectified. To be treated like an object when you know you're not. (laughs) But when you can't stop those in power from treating you like one. I love the book in part because even though it's a book that ends up celebrating Santa and not Jesus, (laughs) it at least does set the stage for the darkness against which the meaning of Christmas makes sense. Because when the Bible And so many Christmas songs talk about Jesus coming as a light that shines the darkness, that the darkness cannot overpower. Part of that darkness that the Bible is talking about 
is the injustice and the pain that exists all around a world that is so badly damaged by one abuse of power after another. That's partly the darkness that the Bible has in mind. And part of the, part of the light that the Bible intends when it describes Jesus coming as a light that that darkness cannot overpower is the, is the promise that Jesus has come into the world as a king who uses his authority differently from what we've come to expect from this world as it is. That this new boss is not the same as the old boss. Guys, the, the, the Bible is just eyes wide open on the reality of authority used for bad, for evil, on the danger of authority in the hands of the wrong people. But the solution to bad authority is not no authority where everybody's a, a, a king unto himself and does whatever is right in his own eyes. That's chaos. The Bible has a lot to say about that too. It does not end well for anyone. Now, the solution to authority used badly is authority used with justice and righteousness by the one authorized to do just that in the lives of God's world full of God's people. And the hope that builds through the whole Bible like a massive wave is that one of these days there will come one who is good and godly in his use of power to set everything right so that everybody gets to thrive. And I don't know of a better place in all the scriptures to see that hope, that building wave brought into 20 verses and celebrated with beauty and clarity and power than the 20 verses of Psalm 72 which Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years have celebrated at this time of year. Psalm 72 is like a, a profile of the king that Israel was longing for. It celebrates what the right kind of king ruling in the right way would mean for God's people and for their quality of life. Uh, one scholar described it as the light at the end of the tunnel. This psalm is the light at the end of the tunnel looking through all this darkness to what's coming one day, to what it will be like when he gets here. And it is a vision of great beauty that I think you will see draws you in, awakens your desire for the kind of king Jesus has come to be for us. Another way to think about this psalm is as a job description. You know, in a job description, typically you're going to have at least two things. You're going to have a paragraph near the top that's going to describe the responsibilities for this position. Here's what the job is for. Here's its role in the life of this organization or this, this body. And then you're going to have a paragraph on the qualifications for that job. Here's what would have to be true of this person for them to do this job well. And that's what Psalm 72 gives us. It gives us the profile of, of what this set of responsibilities is and what kind of character would be necessary for someone to, to live well in this role. And what I want to do together today as we walk through Psalm 72 is take three simple steps. I want to show you what we need. That's point one. That's the responsibilities of the king. I want to show you who we need. That's point two. That's the qualifications of the king. And then I want to show you where we find him. That's point three, the coming of the king. What we need, that's the responsibilities of the king. Who we need, the qualifications of the king. And where we find him, the coming of the king. And before we go any further, I want to read to you this beautiful psalm all at once. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in verse one of Psalm 72 and read to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Be 
Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let me show you first, friends, what we need or the responsibilities of the king. I bet you noticed as we were reading through this psalm that almost every verse here is a prayer to God about the reign of the king. In other words, through prayer to God, this psalm established what the target is. The king's job is to work towards what this prayer asks for. So what is it that he's responsible for? I'm trying to sum it up. I'd say this psalm tells us the, the responsibility of the king is to apply God's standards to God's people so they flourish. His job is to use his power, his authority, to apply God's standards to God's people so that they flourish. In other words, think about the king as a kind of middle management figure. He's a middleman between what God has said is good and right and true, God's righteousness. And, and the people who flourish under God's ways. So what I want to do to, to unpack this, this first section is look in both directions. The king is one who looks up to God, to his righteousness and his justice, his standards, so that he understands them and applies them. 
and then looks, looks down to the people that God has placed under him to make sure they are flourishing under God's standards. Let me look in both directions with you. First, the king looks up to God's standards, to, to the righteousness of God. Right at the center of these opening verses is the word righteousness and its close cousin, justice. Did you notice that, that word gets repeated several times in these first few verses? And the key to the prayer is how the psalm puts it in the very first verse. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. What's he talking about? Well, justice you might think of as everybody getting their due. Justice is, is people being treated in the way that they're supposed to be treated. And, and righteousness, it's not a word we use as, as often, but simply means everything working like it's supposed to. I know we don't use that word very much, but what, we, what that word means is something we experience all the time. When you hear righteous, think about the proper function of something on God's terms. God's world working on God's design. What God says about how society is supposed to work. That's what he means by, by righteousness. So, so human society that follows God's rules the way the solar system follows God's rules. That's what righteousness has in mind. So at, at small group this week, we had a Christmas party which obviously included a very lively game of white elephant. Dirty Santa, Yankee Swap, I don't know what you call it, we call it white elephant. And our game of white elephant was righteous. That was the key to the whole thing working well. It was, it was not merciful. I mean, it was absolutely every man or woman for him or herself against every kid that had the courage to face us in battle. <laughs> it wasn't merciful, was it? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But it was righteous, and it was righteous because before we even got started, Sarah Barbara stood up in front of us, and she laid out the rules of the game. Here's how this will go. Step by step, here's the rules everyone will follow. And she upheld those rules with strength from the first open gift through every merciless steal till the last gift was off the table. She defined and upheld righteousness, so we all had a blast. Even if we didn't end up with what we wanted, we had a blast. The game went great. Which brings us to the other direction the king must look. He must look to the righteousness of God. How is this supposed to work? What are the standards we're meant to apply to all of this? That's what he means by righteousness. The king is to look to the people as well. How are they doing? Are they flourishing? under these standards God has given. Because this king knows that his reign is not about him. It's about the good of the people under him. Verse three is where this verse comes out so clearly. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. Prosperity, it's the word shalom. It's a big word, wide range of possible meanings, but, but the, the, the package involves wholeness and, and security and, and thriving and just general peace and well-being for everybody. And most of the psalm's images really try to bring this simple truth to light. What would it mean for the, for the reign of this king to bear prosperity or peace or shalom for all the people? Well, if you're in an agricultural society, the best way to describe what, would, what this would look like is to picture waves and waves and waves of grain flourishing with a full harvest for everyone to enjoy. 
The way you'd picture it is, is that there'd be waves of grain, not just down in the valleys next to where you expect the water sources to be, but even up on tops of the mountains where normally it's nothing but rock or maybe snow and ice. Verse 16, look at it. May there be abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of the mountains may it wave. This king is so good for the lives of his people that they flourish even where nobody has flourished before. That's his target. That's what his reign is for. And it isn't just talking about crops, in case you missed the point. Verse 16 ends. We're talking about people here. May the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. I mean, there's, there's images like this all through the psalm. You saw them when we, wrote, when we read through it. it. It reminds me of that scene when Aslan finally shows up in the line, the Witch in the Wardrobe, and it's been always winter and never Christmas under the white witch's cruel reign. She used her authority for evil, and everybody was frozen. And people were turned to stone all over the place. But the true king comes, doesn't he? Aslan shows up, and what happens? Winter breaks. And out of the snow sprout up new grasses and new flowers. And Aslan breathes on stones and they turn back to living creatures. That's Psalm 72. That's what it's like for the king to come and put God's justice in place over the lives of God's people. That's the king's job. His job is to do what God wants, not what he wants. So the people benefit, not just him. He rules under God. And he rules for the people. And when the king does his job, well, verse 3 describes him as the kind of soil where their prosperity grows. Or he is to the lives of his people, verse 4 says, what rain is to freshly mown grass. The king, as God's agent, brings about this good in the lives of his people. So I wonder... Can you see yet why a righteous king is so important? This psalm is, is just celebrating on a, on a kind of global scale what you have experienced in your life on a smaller scale all over the place. If you've ever played sports, you probably had good coaches and bad coaches. I didn't play a lot of sports, but I've seen my son play under good baseball coaches and bad baseball coaches. Thankfully, in Little League, the stakes are pretty low, but you, you know what makes for one or, or, or the other, don't you? I mean, the good coach is, even at a Little League level, that's somebody who knows and who knows how to teach the rules of the game so that everybody involved here understands what's going on, so it's not just chaos, not lost on anyone. It's one who, a coach who runs a clean practice. My goodness, have we seen the difference between a practice where everybody's on the same page, where it's tight, where the, where the purpose is clear and the, and the coach holds us to it, where everybody knows what they're doing and works together, not off on their own doing their own thing. A good coach is one who knows how far to push at, at this stage of development for the, for, the, for the players working under him and knows how to push them not too far and risk burning them out. A, a good coach is, is one who knows what each player needs to take the next step. He's paying attention to each player and knows, okay, that one needs some help throwing because the, the throwing is not there or that one needs some help at the plate because there's the hand-eye coordination just isn't developed yet there's not enough muscle memory there and, and he takes each player off and gives them the attention that they need to flourish that's the kind of coach you want one who knows how to bring the best out of each player and how to keep the whole team on the same page at all times and you know what bad coaches look like too don't you coaches who maybe with the best of intentions just don't give much structure to the practices Coaches where kids just run crazy. 
Coaches who maybe themselves got snookered into it without knowing the game very well. And so they don't even know what they're teaching or they, they don't know how to teach it. And as the levels get more advanced, coaches who, who push players to a breaking point because what they care about is their own stat line. They care about their own career record. They don't care about using their players till they've got nothing more to give. What we need in life, what we need overall is the same thing we need in a good coach or a good professor or a good parent or a good boss or a good police officer. We need an authority that will stick to righteousness so that we can flourish. You see it? Friends, I know there there is plenty of suspicion, especially in our culture, in our time and place, about authority gone bad. And there's a lot of good reason for that. Because authority has often been used for evil. And when it is, everybody suffers. The threat is real. But, but our answer can't be that, that there's therefore no safe authority but mine. Me against the world. That's chaos. That's survival of the fittest. That's what that is. That is, in judge's language, that's every man doing what's right in his own eyes. And the best man wins. That doesn't work either. What we need, what we can't live without, what what we cannot flourish without is an authority who cares about righteousness and who cares about us. One who cares about what God says and who cares about how we're doing. Before we go any further into this portrait, let me just say that most of us in this room are in authority in one place or another and under authority in different places in our lives. Chances are you either are right now or will soon be in some sort of authority somewhere in your life and that you're also under authority in your life. So wherever God has given you authority, this right here is your target. Psalm 72, God's standards applied to the people who are under you so that they flourish. Where has God given you authority? Are you a boss Are you a teacher? Are you a coach? Are you a husband? Are you a mom? Are you a board member? Where where are you in authority over others? Think about that right now. You got it in your mind. Now remember, your authority is under God for them. Under God for them. Under God for them. What has God said about how this should go in your sphere? And how can you be to those under you what rain is to mown grass? Let me just encourage you to be relentlessly asking the same simple question over and over and over for whatever authority you have in your life. What has God said about this? And how are they doing? What has God said about this? And how are they doing? And we're, all of us are also under authority. So I think about that right now. Where are you under authority? Where has God put someone over you in your life, at work or in your family or in your citizenship or maybe in this church? Wherever you're under authority, then Psalm 72 has given you your prayer list. Pray these things for those people. Pray that those who have authority over you will look to God's righteousness and seek your good. Because it is a dangerous thing 
to be under evil authority. It is a dangerous thing to have someone in power over you who doesn't care what God says and doesn't care how you're doing. Flee authority like that wherever you see it. And because anyone in authority over you is a sinner in need of a savior, pray that God will do work in their heart so that they rule to whatever extent they've got power in the way God wants them to. That's why we pray so often as Matt did this morning before the sermon. Matt prayed over those who were in government authority. Whether they be Christian or not, our prayer is that God would help them to see what's true about the world he made and to prioritize the people who are under them and not padding their own resume. Pray that on repeat. Pray that for your pastors. Pray that for anyone who you work with who's got any sort of leadership role in your life. Pray this for your home. Pray this because apart from God's power, we'll mess it all up every time. Now, that's point one. What do we need? Well, we need a king who will apply God's standard to God's people so they flourish. That's what we need. So who do we need? What kind of king could get that job done? What are the qualifications he'd have to have to be able to follow through on those responsibilities? Who could pull this off? There's one place in this psalm where the pattern of prayers for the king and his reign and what should come from it gets broken. And the psalmist sings about the kind of man that this king he's praying for truly is. There's one central section in the psalm where the focus comes off of circumstances for this person's reign and goes on to his character from which he reigns, from the responsibilities of the job to the qualifications for the job. It happens in verses 12 to 14, but we can see it so much more clearly if we back up and see those verses in context. Look with me to verse 8. Verse 8 shifts from the quality of life under this king's kingdom to the scope of his kingdom. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. Here's a kingdom that should last forever and ever and ever and ever. And then to verse 8, we're talking about how far this kingdom will go. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him. It's just this building sense that wherever there are kings, let them worship this king and bow before this king alone. It's a prayer that the king would be universal, that his kingdom would spread from shore to shore and sea to sea. And with that one reference there in the middle about enemies licking dust, we might think this is all based on the brutality of the king, that that he would rule over all because people are scared. They're shaking in their boots when they hear him coming. I mean, that's how Assyria's kingdom spread. That's what the ancient empires were all built on, fear. Because when Assyria showed up, Their track record had already gone forward before them. They used brutality as theater. So when these smaller nations felt them coming, when they felt the earth shaking under the hooves of their their cavalry and under the boots of their soldiers, they would just throw open the gates and say, come on in, take what you want. Just don't hurt us. Just take it all. But if you look more closely, that's not what's happening in these verses. These kings aren't driven to their knees in fear. They are drawn to this king like a magnet. They're drawn out of love and desire. 
And in other words, this is a king they want to live under. This is the one they've been longing for. All nations will serve him. Why? Verse 12. For the reason they'll serve him, he delivers the needy when he calls. That's what kind of guy he is. The poor and him who has no helper. He helps that person. They'll bow to him because he has pity on the weak and the needy. They'll bow because he saves the lives of the needy who can't save themselves. The nations will come and bow because because from oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And these nations will bow. They will want in on his kingdom because their blood is precious in his sight. His reign stretches over all the world because everybody wants a king who sees their life as precious. That's what this psalm is saying. He's the desire of every nation. So zoom back out with me now. What we need is a king who knows that he's under God, ruling for the good of his people, middle management. That king brings a kingdom who's where flourishing and wholeness and security and peace without any fear is the norm. What kind of king can rule over a kingdom like that? And the central qualification that this psalm is giving us is that it'll have to be a king in power who sees the weakest lives as precious to him. Because it is difficult to uphold God's justice for people who don't seem worth the effort. Unless the person in power feels empathy, feels common humanity with the most vulnerable, he will not represent their interests. They can't often speak for themselves. They don't have the money to make you pay attention. You have to be drawn to them to uphold justice for them when you got every reason not to. So what we need is a king who knows that human life is precious because it's precious to God. Every time we read Stickman, it reminds me of one of my favorite images of the civil rights movement, that that crowd full of peaceful, peaceful protesters in Memphis. You've probably seen the picture. All wearing that same simple sign strapped across every chest. I am a man. Stop treating me like a fetch toy for your dog or an arm for your snowman or a mask for your flag or fodder for your factories. I am a man. And Israel was was all too familiar with that experience, with having that simple message questioned by those who were in power. That's why the Psalms are so full of prayers for God to come and judge with righteousness. Come, please judge me. Hear my case. Judge me according to your righteousness. I'm waiting. They weren't afraid of that kind of judgment because what they were longing for was someone with power to pay attention to their case. They couldn't get it heard. Nobody cared. They wanted someone to see their humanity. They're like stick man crying out to be heard. I'm stick man, I'm stick man, I'm stick man. I just want to get home to the family tree. I'm not an arm. And that's why this psalm, right at its center, describes the king that we need, this king who will apply God's standards to God's people as a king full of compassion for the vulnerable. This king knows a man when he sees one. And every life is precious because it's precious to God. 
Friends, you need this kind of authority in your life. Follow the actions in verses 12 to 14 with me. You need a king who will deliver you when you call. You need one who helps. You need one who has pity. You need one who saves. One who redeems. All because your blood is precious to him. And when that's the kind of authority you live with, this authority you were made to depend on, he will be to you what rain is to grass. You were not made to flourish without him. Friends, you know that, that also part of growing in godliness so that our lives come to reflect more of God's beauty is becoming more and more affected by the needs of the needy. The Bible is so clear about this. It's all through the scriptures. It's so clear about God's character on the one hand that he is one who is drawn in to those most likely to be overlooked, those most likely to be abused or struggling for one reason or another because he, he's just like the mom who, who loves all her kids equally but gives special attention to the one who's just fallen and is crying. If a mom's got several kids and one of them has just fallen and broken an arm on the playground, it's, that, that's the one the mom is on, like that. That's the way God is. When his image bearers are suffering, he's on it. And those who love God with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength, those who are loving their way into more and more godliness, love their neighbors as themselves because God loves their neighbors. They're precious to him. And what's precious to him will become precious to us as our love for him grows. That means being more and more and more moved and more drawn in where you see God's image bearers suffering. I'm not trying to say that you will be able to jump on every need of every person in this room right now, much less every person on your block or in this city or in this world. I know we are outpaced by far by the needs that we live around. What I am saying is that we want to be people who love to do what we can and always wish we could do more. People who are looking to represent God well in the way we love those that God loves wherever he gives opportunity. Kids, I'm so grateful that so many of you are, are interested in following Jesus. Some of you following Jesus already, exploring more and more about what that looks like. I, let me just tell you one really clear and one really beautiful way that you can honor God in your life would be to reach out to kids around you that seem to be on the fringes for one way or another. You're going to know better than I do what gets a person stuck on the fringes at your school or wherever you hang out, whether that's their personality or their clothes or their interests or their background or something they did that people talk about or whatever it might be. You would know better than me. But I think you also probably know who I'm talking about, don't you? Whatever the reason they might be on the fringes, you know, one way for you to honor God would be to make a plan for going after them and trying to be a good friend or a neighbor to them. Try to figure out how you can show them that you see them as precious because you know they're precious to God and God is precious to you. I know it might affect your status at school if you do that. You know, sometimes there's a kind of guilt by association thing that happens in school. And if you start befriending people no one else wants to be friends with, that might mean fewer and fewer people want to be friends with you. But, you know, that could be really good for you, too. Because if you want to be a follower of Jesus, one of the things you'll be growing in from now until the end of your life is in learning 
to let what other people think matter less and less to you and what God thinks matter more and more to you. And now is a perfect time to start making sure your status at school doesn't matter more to you than it matters to God. See, see, God cares far more for the kids on the fringes at your school than he cares about how the cool kids think about you. Adults, I, I think seeing, seeing how important the needy and the poor and the helperless and the weak and the oppressed are to this king and knowing that's because they're important to our God, I think it's important for us to take inventory of our lives every now and then from time to time to see do, 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 do my priorities reflect something of God's priorities? So do you have people in your life that fit somehow in the categories of verses 12 to 14? If you don't, or if you can't come up with many, I, my, my goal in raising that question isn't to shame you. I mean, or to catch you, kind of make you walk out of here, hanging your head. Oh, of course, I'm not doing enough. It's not the point. The point is to encourage you that, that, that compassion is godly. That, that compassion, where it exists, is always going to lead to proximity. It's going to push us toward those in need and to look to help. And, and then that's going to raise honest questions for us on the regular Questions like, if, if my relationships don't include people like those in this verse, vulnerable in these ways, why not? Is it because they don't, it, it, let me just say, it isn't because they don't live nearby. I mean, a city like Nashville, you don't have to drive far to see people just like this. Is it because it feels awkward to you? Like there's a culture gap you don't know how to cross? Is it maybe you don't know what to talk about with people whose lives are a lot more challenged in these ways than yours has been is it that you're afraid you won't know how to help if you get in you'll get sucked in and you can't manage it and, it, and you don't know how you'll get out is it is it pride maybe not a pride that thinks you're better than people like that but pride that that spends all your time looking up at this plateau up there you'd like to be on leaving no space to look below at those who need help just to subsist in life you have no reason to hide from questions like that. Take an inventory of your relationships and then of your heart and pray that God will make your heart more and more and more like his. And let me just say one more thing before I move to the final and really brief point. And at the risk of spoiling the conclusion that's coming, let me just say right now, this kingdom of Psalm 72, you know it's already spreading through local churches like this one right here, that it shows up among us, when we apply God's standards to our life together as a people. And one of my favorite places to see the purpose of the local church lived out is in Acts chapter 2, where it's clear that, this local, that local churches are meant to be like embassies of the coming kingdom. The apostles go out and they preach the gospel for the first time. And they say, the king has come, the king is coming, repent, meaning submit to him, bow to him. Psalm 72. And then people do. And when they do, they're baptized and they're added to the church. And the end of Acts chapter 2 talks about what their life is like under this king when they come up, come to live together under his rule. And they're constantly listening to what God has to say. And then they're constantly looking around at the group to see how is everybody doing. And when there are needs in the church, they're selling their possessions. They're selling their belongings. They're pooling their resources so everybody has their needs taken care of. Because in this kingdom... Every life is precious. And in this kingdom, nobody gets to thrive if everybody isn't thriving. In a local church, Psalm 72 becomes real. 
while we wait for that kingdom to spread from shore to shore. And it was like a magnet. The end of that chapter says many were being added to them day by day, the number of those who were being saved. They saw this life in action and they said, I want in on that. I'll take what they're having. Give me some of that. And that's our calling as a local church, to live this kingdom now so that others are drawn into it. Now, where I want to leave you, very briefly, point number three, is where we find a king like this. Where we find him, the coming of the king. There is good reason that this psalm has been so special at this time of year for Christians all over the world for hundreds of years. You can see it by now for sure. This psalm sets the stage for the king Israel spent hundreds and hundreds of years waiting for until Jesus was born. This is a a psalm that isn't about David. It puts to music his final words, his ambition for his reign and for those who would come after him, but he never saw this, not in his time. And it sure isn't about Solomon. It's not about anybody who came after them either. Israel's kings more often than not just reproduced the problems they were meant to solve. This psalm belongs in Israel's hope for a greater king, for one who would come and rule forever just as God had promised. It's a song about Jesus. And from the very beginning, Jesus' life echoed the themes of this psalm. The angels announced his coming to Mary and told him he would rule on the throne of his father David just as this psalm prayed would happen. When the angels announced his birth to the shepherds, do you remember what they sang? Peace on earth, shalom, wholeness, security, flourishing. In other words, may the mountains bear prosperity for the people. He's here now. He's here. You can go see him for yourself. And when the wise man came from far off in the east, they brought their treasures and they bowed before him just as Psalm 72 predicted. Not from fear, but from love. They wanted in on what this king had come to bring. And when he grew, What this king was most known for everywhere he went was his compassion on those who were overlooked by everybody else. This king was famous for seeking out lepers nobody else would touch and the disabled that no one else had had any hope for and the poor that the religious elites were annoyed by and the children that his own disciples didn't have time for. But he didn't just go after the needy who were suffering, those who were sympathetic. He went after sinners too, after those who had earned their place on the outskirts of society, who deserved to be out there where they were. He went after tax collectors, traitors to their people, guys like Zacchaeus who saw what he'd done and was convicted by it and just wanted a new start and a different life. Jesus had time for them and nowhere Is it more obvious that Christ is the compassionate king of Psalm 72 than how he looked on the same soldiers who were crucifying him on the cross? Father, forgive them, he prayed. They don't know what they're doing. In this moment, it's it's incredible, isn't it? He, He looks down on those who were actively killing him. And what did he see? People who needed saving, that's what he saw. He hung there under a sign put up to mock him and his people. King of the Jews, it read. Fraud exposed. But they didn't know what Psalm 72 had predicted. The joke was on the Romans. 
Because this right here is the king at his most beautiful. The king who delivers the needy who call on him. Those with no other helper. Who has pity on the weak. Who redeems even sinners from judgment they bring on themselves. The king for whom even the blood of his enemies is precious in his sight. This is the king that the nations desire. Isn't it glorious? So friends, this Jesus is where we find him. His perfect obedience to the righteousness of God. His death in obedience to rescue sinners. His resurrection in power. His promise to return so that his kingdom spreads from shore to shore. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. This is where we find him. And nobody gets in on this king right now without bowing to him first. So your first step this morning, if you've never come to Jesus, is to come bowing to him because there's only one king in this kingdom and it won't be you. You have to accept that you have made a mess of being your own king. That it hasn't led where you thought it would when you've been in charge. And hear the message that Jesus is merciful to you anyways. And he is glad to take on the responsibility that you've made a mess of. Because when you come to this king, you don't have to be afraid. Listen to how he's been described all the way through. When you come to this king to accept his rule, it's like coming to a fine chef and saying, feed me. This week, me and Lindsay celebrated 21 years of marriage with one of the finest meals I've ever had in this city. It was unbelievable. And what made it so great is that as soon as we sat down, we put ourselves in the hands of the people who were running the show. And we just said, feed us. Bring us what we should want. And when you come to Jesus, to this king right here, that's what you're coming to. A king who knows how to make you flourish in your life. You just say, feed me. That's what repentance is. I'll do what you say because you know best. And friends, because he's coming, if you're his child, if you are already a citizen of his kingdom, your move is to pray that he will come quickly. This psalm is a prayer for a reign and a rule that we haven't experienced yet. Pray that he will live long. Pray that he will reign with blessing. Pray that his kingdom will prosper. Pray that he'll be famous forever. Pray that people, all the nations will bless him and trust him and enjoy him like you do. Pray that the whole earth will be full of his glory. Make that prayer yours today and pray it every day until he comes again. Pray for the gospel to spread until he shows back up and let every image on every newspaper that reminds you of how broken this world is drive you to your knees to the only one who can do anything about it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Will you join me in that prayer right now? Oh, Father, we come to Jesus because we have no one else. No one else who can give us hope in life and in death. We thank you that you have sent us exactly the king that we need. Now we pray, soften our hearts to his rule. Help us desire him. And then help us to represent him here in our church and all around our city and all around the world. We pray that he would come and come quickly. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.